0: What's up movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony and I'm James and this is episode 44. We're doing buddy cop movies in this episode. We'll be going over Lethal Weapon, Rush Hour, Bad Boys, The Nice Guys, Die Hard with a Vengeance, The Other Guys and Hut Fuzz. And before we start, we did our Spotify wrapped 2020 and we found out that we're the 39th most popular TV and film podcast In the United States for 2020, which is awesome. I mean, we really only started the show, it started in July mostly. I mean, we started at the end of June, but like started getting episodes going in July, but we weren't even doing bi-weekly, two episodes a week by then. Yeah, we were doing like uh, maybe three or four for the first month. And then um, not to mention, we're reaching 65 countries right now. We're performing super well in so many countries like Great Britain, Australia, Ireland, wherever you listen to us, we really appreciate you guys around the world. Wherever you're listening, we really appreciate... All of you tuning in every week, every episode, you you really keep us going, and we're hoping to get, number one, the top podcast and TV and film in America by 2021 and in your country, wherever you're listening. We'll get there. This started out as just a little hobby, and now it's really turning into something, and we're having a lot of fun doing it, and we love hearing from you all, and we're glad that people are tuning in and enjoying the show. Yeah, and everyone who sent us their, their wrapped Spotify 2020 screenshots and, and animations, it was super cool to see. We got like 40, 50 people sent us how how high up we rank in their most listened to stuff in 2020 so thanks again yeah it was very touching now what defines a buddy cop film and i think the most important thing obviously is the lead characters with complete contradictory personalities comedy action and just a really fun time this episode of raiders of the lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at movieposters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. This episode is also brought to you by Manscaped. Use coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout to get 20% off in free shipping your entire order. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout from manscaped.com to get 20% off in free shipping. Do it now before it's too late for the holiday season. The first movie in our episode is Lethal Weapon, which was released on March 6th, 1987, directed by Richard Donner and written by Shane Black. The film stars Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, and Gary Busey. This film grossed $120 million on a budget of $15 million. An unlikely pair of cops unmask a huge drug trafficking operation. The clashing cops must get past their differences to catch the smugglers. This film is the epitome of 80s action movies. Countless studios and movie productions have tried to capture what was done with this film and franchise. Obviously, buddy cop TV shows were huge in the early 80s. I mean, we're talking Miami Vice, Spencer for Hire, Hawaii 5 But Lethal Weapon was an early and highly successful film franchise to reignite that style and concept on the big screen, but also they brought a lot of high production value and solid writing to the story. Yeah, this movie is so 80s between Mel Gibson's hair, wearing the the, the Levi's with a tucked in button up, and then the the, the 80s music like the electric guitar and the saxophone riffs in the score. You know who did the guitar? Who? Eric Clapton. Oh, no way. Yeah, so he did the guitar and helped compose the music for this film. That's awesome. It's so 80s, and I love it, and I... Mel Gibson with that puffed out hair is just ridiculous. I think our mom had the same hair when she was like 20. (laughs) And just the the title of the movie, Lethal Weapon, is just kind of ridiculous. And It's obviously like a great iconic one-liner from the film where Dan Glover's like, I guess we're going to have to call you a lethal weapon or something like that. (laughs) If you like our podcast and our content, the best thing you can do is subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts. Hit the notification bells everywhere so you know when we drop new episodes. Leaving those five-star reviews is so helpful for us getting seen by new people. And we have that contest going on right now where people who leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, including the hashtag I Love Movies, gets entered into a contest to be featured as a guest spot on our show, which will be revealed next week. So get those five-star written reviews in ASAP. Don't forget to use the hashtag I Love Movies, and you'll be on the show with us to talk about movies or whatever you want. It'll be fun. We also have a Patreon where you can support us monthly and members get perks. We have a $2, $5, and $10 tier Get personalized messages, sneak peeks at upcoming episodes behind the scenes, as well as a monthly shout out for our top tier patrons, which we'll do right now. Jacob Kostler, Dawson Jolicoware, Luke Rankin, Caitlin Signorelli, Mason Taylor, Harrison Ball, Logan Schroeder, Harry Roscoe, Nate Moore, Riley McDonald, Michael Caranja, Caleb Fleming, Justin Weimer, Andrew Sullivan, Angel Mendez, Tyler Meyer and his girlfriend Asia, Morgan King, Nikala Simeona and his girlfriend Caitlin, Gabe Gutierrez, Travis Ball, Dennis, and Caleb McLeod falls thank you so much for the monthly support of ten dollars guys thank you so much we love you all you ladies and gents you're the best this film set the tone in the style for action films for the following like several years it it felt like a lot of action films especially with cops in the, in the stories we're trying to emulate what lethal weapon did because it was so successful. And Shane black is the screenwriter on this. And you might recognize the name from, he directed iron man three. He also wrote and directed kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And he also did one of the other movies on this film, the nice on this episode, the nice guy. So he's operates really well in that buddy cop genre because he has such, such smart and witty writing. And he really understands action and how to tell a story in like a heavy action film. and, He's all over this movie, and and his screenplay is obviously fantastic. Danny Glover and Mel Gibson provide some of the best comedic rapport you'll ever see in a movie, specifically a buddy cop movie, and obviously it works because they're total opposites. Like, Murtaugh is a straight-laced family man. He's a good cop, a simple man. Riggs is a wild card full of bad habits. He's also very spirited at times, but he also has a very dark side to him because his wife had died previously before the movie starts, and so he acts erratically and consistently jeopardizes he and Murtaugh's lives. And basically, he kind of acts like he has nothing to live for and also that he's willing to put his life on the line in any situation. This film, I think, is the first one to really set up the the famous archetypes of the loose cannon, out-of-control partner and then the the straight-laced, responsible partner, which you've seen copied so many times. And, and if you look at all these films, it has that same archetype. One cop who is very diligent and responsible or and, and does their job the right way. And then there's the other cop who's kind of like all over the place. And I think these two uh, were the ultimate example of this. And I think that, that's why we put it first because this is the ultimate buddy cop movie, I think. Yeah, and Riggs played by Mel Gibson. He's, uh, his past is that he's a highly trained ex-Special Forces officer. But again, his wife died in a car crash. He's obviously very depressed, he's an alcoholic, he's beyond reckless, borderline suicidal, and we have that really intense emotional suicide, almost almost suicide attempt with the handgun, which, my God, that guy can act. It's that, a very good scene it, of acting. It's incredible acting. In that, that actually got him the job of Hamlet, the director who directed Hamlet, the film, with Mel Gibson. He saw that scene and called him right away because he was so impressed with it. And he's, you know, he's not a typical Hollywood action hero because he has a death wish, and nothing to lose really in his life. Whereas again, Murtaugh is this like perfect employee, perfect cop. He's a, he's like kind of a, the ideal father, the ideal husband. He's a family man. He's a very honorable and honest cop. And the way they meet in this film is hysterical <laughs> because Murtaugh's at the precinct and he sees some guy with a gun lo- and with plain clothes and he's like, gun. And so he tries to go tackle the guy. <laughs> but it's really Riggs again showing his reckless persona, holding a gun out, just playing with it. Yeah. And then he takes down Murtaugh in and, a, and, uh, aims the gun at him and then their captain just goes well meet, say, your, new meet your new partner your new partner so it's just like ridiculously cliche way to meet like the two partners and it's funny but also shows their personalities and their characters you want to know something crazy about Mel Gibson in this movie is that he was 30 years old in this movie when they filmed this movie 30 years old that's pretty nuts he looks like he's 45 but also he looks old and young at the same time yeah he looks a lot older than he is I, I couldn't believe it I've, I would have guessed at the least he was like 37 38 when they filmed this movie he's probably been ripping butts since he was like 12 <laughs> years old dude he, he just has like a very mature uh, adult face i think yeah. and i love this character because he's not badass for no reason like you get so many characters especially in the 80s and 90s where they're just badass like hot shots and there's nothing more to it they're just two-dimensional but he's he on the surface he's badass but like you said he has a death wish and he's He's literally putting himself into situations where he can get killed without actually pulling the trigger himself. And it's the characters that that really drive this story. Like all these buddy cop movies, it's the characters that work the best. And seeing them both... Dealing with their struggles in their relationship, Riggs deals with his pain and trauma, while Murtaugh struggles to do with what struggles to do what is right with his new partner by his side. And his obviously his partner has unorthodox methods to the things that they have to do. They fight, they scream, they laugh, they cry. They actually build a really memorable and beautiful friendship throughout the film. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers. Precision engineered tools for your comfort obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. We've used everything. I'm telling you, this is legit stuff. Their their lawnmower trimmer is fantastic. It's waterproof. It has a light on it, so you can trim in low light situations if that ever is a problem for you. Maybe if you maybe if you shower with the lights off, you can go ahead and trim in the shower. I like the shower with dim lighting. Yeah, it's actually nice. Get 20 off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20 percent off from Manscape.com. Any guy would love anything from Manscape.com. It's so great. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. And Mur- Murtaugh realizes that uh, Rigg's behavior actually is beneficial to the investigation because they they move through the investigation and, and learn more things because of how out of control he is. Because it's, it's uh, putting them in situations to find new information out. So he ends up going along with, for the ride and, and kind of allowing him to do his thing most of the time. Yeah, we have a couple of really good villains. in this film specifically Gary Busey as Mr. Joshua he's a great villain and yeah. this guy like he was on fire in the 90s too especially point break and this mm-hmm. and uh Mr. Joshua is like a crazy solid counter to Riggs whereas the other guy the other like head boss is a counter to McAllister to McAllister is, is a a counter to Mertle, and they actually both end up spoiler obviously you've seen this movie they all they both end up killing the opposite versions of themselves really at the end of the film and this movie can be a little sensational and, and a, a little tongue in cheek, but in a good way. Like the ending, how Riggs does kill Joshua is they they have a huge fist fight in Murtar's front yard, and there's like helicopters, and, shirtless, yeah, shirtless. In it's the rain. Ra- it's raining, <laughs> and there's like fifty cops surrounding them in a circle while they fight, and then Riggs just like. Uh, uh, knocks him out unconscious it, it's it's just a it's ridiculous it would never happen in real life but it's fun yeah a lot of things don't happen in real life like that happen obviously the, the scenes where Murta- eventually Murtaugh's daughter gets kidnapped by the, uh, the crime syndicate cr- the criminals and uh, they have to go and try to save her they end up getting captured themselves tortured but then at this scene it's really cool because we finally get to see like what Riggs is really like what's his training like like we've seen him like obviously he took down Danny Glover and everything and he's they've chased after bad guys and stuff like that he's done some crazy stuff but he like takes out like seven guys with hand-to-hand combat who have guns in the scene it's pretty badass they actually purposely wrote in for the character to have mixed martial arts background so in this film it's one of the early depictions in American film of real martial arts real mixed martial arts like jujitsu judo and he's using all sorts of techniques in this scene that they trained for and it's the first example of a hollywood star ever training in different martial arts for a scene that's pretty cool yeah. and again the characters and in just to tie with the music so we hear two instruments throughout the entire movie we hear that those like solid like guitar riffs <laughs> that eric clapton's playing but also we hear saxophone solos and that's literally much they pretty much back and forth And the saxophone is basically the instrument for Murtaugh, and then the guitar is the instrument and themes for Riggs. So they both have their own instrument, and they both blend so well with the characters. And what's amazing about this role for for Mel Gibson is that uh, Bruce Willis was originally considered for the role of Riggs, and Mel Gibson was considered for the role of John McClane in Die Hard. And then both films, they end up going to the other actor. I think they, they're perfect for each role, but I still think that... Either one of them could have worked for either movie. That could have swapped. Either yeah. way would have been totally fine. Yeah. It definitely could have. Mm-hmm. And actually, Mel Gibson, he turned down The Fly and The Untouchables in order to do this movie, which is insane because those are very successful movies and well-known movies. Yeah, but they didn't become major franchises. And exactly. this became a huge—this this made him a superstar. Mel Gibson was still pretty much only known for Mad Max, and even the studio wasn't sure about casting him because he was—like I said, he was 30 years old. He was still pretty young. Especially in Hollywood and, and the director and the producers took a chance on him And this ex- made him explode onto the scene A ton of people were actually considered for John McClane It was Harrison Ford, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger They all turned it down I don't know how Arnold Schwarzenegger would have fit through all the <laughs> all the air ducts and everything that he would have had to travel through in Die Hard, and I know a lot of people are upset that we didn't do Die Hard in our Christmas movie, but we're saving that because we're going to do like a classic best action movie episode pretty soon. Yeah, we didn't want to do it two episodes so close to each other. Yeah, and we want to save that so we can talk about it more than that Christmas episode because we we're going pretty quick through that. Yeah, and the Christmas one was just pretty much Christmas theme, in the family scent theme. the family like the the theme of the movie is Christmas. I mean, we love Die Hard; it's our favorite Christmas movie, but there's yeah. a reason we didn't put it in exactly. Too many guns. <laughs> <laughs> On top of how great the movie is in terms of the the comedy, the dialogue, the chemistry between the two leads, there's a lot of great action in this film, and it kind of set the stage for uh, what people wanted to see in action movies afterwards. Because uh, around here, it was Sly and Arnold were were getting big, but they were just like shooting people up with guns and stuff. But with this film, there was a lot of great action set pieces, especially with the car chases where. We got to see really great action not with just a one-man army but with like utilizing the entire environment of a city and different kind of vehicles and a combination of car chases explosions uh fighting so i think this was a really a step up in terms of action for for hollywood cinema and of course the classic house explosion i mean that's mm-hmm. all over this genre now because there's this <laughs> <laughs> which was spoofed really well than other guys <laughs> Overall, Lethal Weapon, man, it's it's an excellent movie. It's it's a great time every single every single watch you have of it. And I mean, I used to watch it all the time. We used to watch it all the time when it was on TV when we were kids. And Mel Gibson and Dan Glover, iconic duo. It's probably the best in the buddy cop genre of all time. And every every other buddy cop movie has tried to capture the magic that these two guys have on camera together. Yeah, I think when someone's making a buddy cop film, they look to Lethal Weapon to see how how they did it in that film because it's so well made pretty much a perfect action movie i, I love it and it's on un- it's rewatchable in the scene where Riggs is actually contemplating suicide with the handgun there's actually a bullet blank in the chamber which mel gibson was pointing at his head thinking that it would la- allow for a greater sense of portraying the scene realistically and dramatically and man that is nuts that would really hurt you, if yeah, you yeah if you fired a, a blank at your face yeah blanks are very loud still yeah and yeah i'm sure he'd have some sort of damage too This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the best site To get your movie posters They have been for years They're so fun to work with David's been great From movieposters.com They sent us a bunch of posters Obviously these 11 by 17's For the set are perfect These are only $10 a pop Plus our coupon code Raiders15 in all caps To get 15% off Again $8.50 a poster That's such a good deal It's a perfect gift For the holiday season So I recommend If you have movie people In your life Family members That you need to get gifts for Get their favorite movie poster Obviously they have More than 11 by 17's They They have larger designs Original designs Framing, backlight, canvas, plaque designs a bunch of original artist designs on there so check out movieposters.com coupon code Raiders15 all caps to get 15% off your order today next up we have Rush Hour released on September 18th 1998 directed by Brett Ratner written by Ross LaManna and Jim Cove this film stars Jackie Chan Chris Tucker Tom Wilkinson Zima and Ken Lung. This movie had a budget of $33 million and a worldwide box office of $244 million. After a Chinese consul's daughter has been kidnapped, a talented Hong Kong inspector goes to L.A. to rescue her. Much to his dismay, LAPD Detective Carter, a man who hates the idea of having a partner, is assigned to aid him. Despite their differences, they work together to save the young girl. Rush Hour is such an iconic buddy cop film. It has a, a great blend of comedy and, and action and... It's just a really good time. It's very fun. And most of all, it introduced America to Jackie Chan. Rush Hours might have been my favorite movie when I was like 12 years old. I love this movie. I watched, watched it. it every time it was on TV. I put it, We put it on. I love, love, love this movie. And I think Chris Tucker is absolutely hysterical. And he and Jackie Chan have incredible rapport, which is created from how different their characters are. And Chris Tucker might be the funniest person I've ever seen on film. He's up there for me personally. Something about him just... Him and his delivery, his energy, his his, his loudmouth tendencies, is not He's like a John Carrey. It's insane. The energy he has. He hits every like funny bone in my body. I love everything about him. And again, like you just said, there's a huge role for Jackie Chan. He had been in big roles in America and Hollywood before this, but this was him the first time featuring him speaking English for the majority of the film, which was a crucial crucial step for him adapting to Western film and Hollywood filmmaking. His English obviously isn't perfect in this film, and they don't really haven't speaking it much until the second, or really the, the second act of the movie. So maybe they were teaching him the lines and teaching him English while they were filming. So yeah, definitely. I, I'd be surprised if that wasn't true. And um, it, you can definitely tell he gave a lot of effort to learning the language because it's a very difficult language to learn over such a short, short period of time. And the bloopers, obviously, are one of the best parts of the movie. Yeah, I remember being a kid and part of going to see a Rush Hour movie was seeing the bloopers at the end. Both the combination of the funny bloopers where he and Chris Tucker are messing up their lines, and then also the insane outtakes of Jackie Chan messing up his stunts. And then when you see these bloopers, you understand that the dedication and the sacrifice that Jackie Jackie Chan put into his filmmaking, where he put his body and his life on the line just to entertain us. And this was a showcase for America. He had been in so many films in China before this, and he was a big star out there. But in America, we weren't used to a, a person who could... Both act and fight and perform stunts like this. To see this actor fight like this without cutting it, a lot of the a lot of the fights are just wide, long takes where you can see everything because you don't have to cut or edit because Jackie can do everything. And no one had ever done that before. And I think that's why he exploded in America because it was something completely new to see him doing this. Bloopers at the end of a movie are are tradition for Jackie Chan films, and it's in pretty much every one of the ones he's in. And Usually, the bloopers before this, like a lot of of his Chinese productions were him in stretchers getting put into ambulances with his thumbs up and stuff like that. Showing his injuries. Yeah, so like really seeing bad injuries of his incredible stunt work. But this one was obviously mostly about uh, flubbed lines and obviously obviously some stunt work. But Jackie is such an incredible legend in terms of film. Um, Obviously, lighthearted comedic timing is really good. And even though he doesn't speak English super well in the beginning in his early films, aside from that... His impressive stunt work is is more akin to like Buster Keaton or even like David Blaine in terms yeah. of the, the risk of his life being in in. But in he parallel. but he also makes it entertaining and funny a lot of times. Half half the times during the fights, it's it's played for comedy. Like he's get like he gets hurt, but it's funny, or he messes something up, or he's like the giant vase. He's trying not to break the vase and damage the valuable art. So they blend. The action and the stunt work with comedy in a great way in this movie. Yeah, so Buster Keaton is he's an old silent film star who was infamous for like starting this incredible stunt work and or like we can compare him to Charlie Chaplin as well in terms of like all the funny comedic physical acting there. But um, this guy shows incredible athleticism in a lot of his early films and still still today. I mean, if you gave this guy a basketball and timeout dribble, I wouldn't be surprised if he dunked on LeBron or something like that. (laughs) but (laughs) he had this like sort of like parkour style before parkour was the thing Yeah. in terms of like traveling from distances in between buildings and and structures yeah using his body to on the environments in a new way because parkour was created in 1990 in France and that's really where it started but I mean Jackie had been doing this his entire film career Mm -hmm. and just like the shot of him like up in the ceiling on the rafters on those poles i'm assuming he was wearing a wire obviously but still what he's doing is incredibly challenging yeah but like that's an example like he might he's probably wearing a wire during that scene because if he falls he dies but there are so many stunts he's done extremely high heights and he's not wearing wires like there's that chinese film where he's in the mall and he he jumps down the christmas lights falls i think three stories and barely survives but he got the shot I'm pretty so, sure he broke a bone on that shot. yeah he i think he broke several ribs in that shot but it's just amazing what he'll do because he's not wearing a wire in that in that scene and if he messes up he's dead and He's willing to put his life on the line to entertain people. And Chris Tucker is the perfect counter to Jackie because although Jackie's moves are incredibly loud, Chris Tucker is basically <laughs> screaming the entire movie in the best way possible because he's such a loudmouth. But in his, he, he like gets out of confrontations with his voice and in, in dialogue and comedic yeah. timing and in, in his in his chops, just like Jackie gets out of his his situations with his with his kicks and punches. And so many of his lines are improvised in this film, and you can tell. He, he must have just been cracking everyone up like he does that he i love when he takes lee to chinatown in la and he goes look just like home just- <laughs> <laughs> this movie's very racist he's like i've been in china but i'm sure it looks just like this <laughs> there are a lot of lines in this movie man that like it would not fly today but he's just so funny in this movie and he, he's like so high energy like jim carrey where he, he's always given 150 and every joke lands he makes this movie so fun because like obviously like Those opening shots of Carter when he shoots the car full of C4 which (laughs) blows up and he does like the Michael Jackson (laughs) dance moves and he's dancing (laughs) and then when he gets the fake promotion to work for the FBI which he thinks which actually isn't a promotion he's pretending he's an agent too like he walks in like he owns the place (laughs) (laughs) he he takes someone's folder and he's like he's like I need two copies of this or something like that everyone's like who is this (laughs) he's just one of the most personal comedic actors I've ever seen in movies and he actually beat out a ton of huge stars for this role he beat out Eddie Murphy Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, and Dave Chappelle before, obviously he was big. So obviously, I think the filmmakers realized the potential that they had with an actor like him. And I I still remember his his first one of his first big break roles was actually in Jackie Brown. He's hysterical in Jackie Brown. He plays like the same character. <laughs> <laughs> he's so young in Jackie Brown. It's crazy. But the thing about Carter, which I really like, is he's not like some hotshot cop who's like a hero. Uh, he's kind of like a bumbling idiot. And the entire force thinks he's like kind of a joke, and his superiors like they think he's a a loser, and that's why they put him on this this job, which is essentially uh, babysitting Lee and like driving him around town for him. Yeah. So they actually frame it as like a promotion yeah. for him. He thinks he's going to work to for convince the FBI, him. Yeah. But really, it's just kind of like a demotion and, and a joke of a job. Mm-hmm. And both these characters, they don't like partners, Carter. He he goes on that uh, undercover mission without his partner, which she gets super upset about. So he doesn't. He likes to work alone, and obviously Lee likes to work alone because because he doesn't want to work with Carter either. But ironically, they both need each other to get through this this investigation. And this movie's not perfect. It's not the best movie ever made. But if you just sit back and watch it, it's a lot of fun and it's so entertaining between the comedy, the laughs and all the fighting and stunt work in the action, it's a great, great movie. Yeah, it's a solid film. I mean, the storyline's pretty decent. You know, we have a Chinese consulate diplomat who whose daughter gets kidnapped while in America, and we have a uh, a bad guy who's British. Obviously, if there's, like, a British lead in an action movie, and he's not one of the heroes, he's definitely going to be the antagonist <laughs> of the film. So he's uh, working a conspiracy against the Chinese diplom- diplomat, and the daughter, Sue Young, is just, like, the cutest little kid, and so they have to rescue her. It's, it's a great movie. You're going to laugh your butt off the entire time. One of the craziest facts about this movie is Rush Hour inspired the creation of the website Rotten Tomatoes. So the, the, the founder of Rotten Tomatoes is a big Jackie Chan fan. And he built the website Rotten Tomatoes originally to collect all of the reviews for Jackie Chan's movies in time for when Rush Hour was released. And so he put together this website and the film came out. And the website became so successful that it turned into what it is now, Rotten Tomatoes. So you can thank Jackie Chan for Rotten Tomatoes. Thanks, Jackie Chan. And the ending's great. We have that climactic uh, tapestry slide when when, uh, Lee jumps from the ceiling and Carter catches him. And then the, he slides and, and lands into him and kisses him. And Kara's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm trying to be thankful. He's like, be more thankful to my nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and the ending on the plane, just like them, and they setting up the sequel in China. And Good I love the it. Good filth fish. Good filth the fish. And it's just great. And I love the sequel. I love the entire franchise. Yeah, as growing up, these films were always a lot of fun to see. And then after this, like, we would see like all of Jackie Chan's movies, like Shanghai Noon, Shanghai Kid, all, all of them. He became one of our favorite actors and. He, you, after this film came out, you went to see a Jackie Chan movie. You went to see the next Jackie Chan movie. So he became a global phenomenon starting with this movie. Which is incredible for someone who didn't speak English when he moved to America and then just became the, one of the biggest action stars in the history of cinema. Mm-hmm. And fun fact about Jackie Chan, despite all the wealth he's acquired, which is quite a lot from all the filmmaking he's done, he uh once he dies he's going to give away all his money to charity and he won't leave any of his money to his son as an inheritance and he says that he's doing it because if he's smart enough and capable enough he'll be able to make his own money he's saving all the money his dad gives him right now his dad dad can i have a hundred bucks just (laughs) saving saving his allowance (laughs) next up we have bad boys which was released may 7th 1995 directed by michael bay written by george gallo and michael barry this film stars will smith martin lawrence Tia Leone, and Joel Pantoliano. This film grossed $141 million off a budget of 19000000 million. Miami-Dade detectives Mike Lowry and Marcus Bennett blow a fuse when $100 million worth of heroin is heisted from station headquarters. Internal Affairs gives them five days to track down the stolen drugs before they shut down the narcotics division. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do, what you gonna do when they come for you, I love Bad Boys I've been singing that song Since I was like Eight years old I love it so much And this is actually Michael Bay's First feature film To be released In his Immense filmography And Michael Bay operated the music video world very successfully for many years, making music videos for very popular artists around the world before tackling feature films. And, you know, Bad Boys, again, his first directorial release, and he brought that aesthetic and edge from the music video genre, which he kind of helped create, which is, you know, music videos are very edgy, edgy productions, to create this popular style that he's been using throughout his entire career. And Michael Bay started out in advertising before he started making music videos, and he came to prominence because he's actually the creator of the Got Milk ad. No way. So Michael Bay created the concept of Got Milk. That is genius. He's a really smart guy. I mean, I know a lot of people give him flack for his style, over stylized and and, uh, cliche-ridden, but I I like his movies. He's very... Successful and an effective filmmaker. I mean his movies have grossed over seven billion dollars So he's clearly doing something right so you can't really talk too much smack about someone that that's that's that successful They can be a little dumb at times that yes, they're full of explosions, but ultimately if you look at him as a a director He's a very talented visual director. You you can compare him to like Zack Snyder where they just have an immense uh, gravitas to their filmmaking and he, if he created his own signature style which not a lot of filmmakers can do if you watch a michael bay movie you know a michael bay movie just by the way it looks and the way he films his, in the way he films it and are his movies oscar contenders no are they entertaining and visually stunning yeah Not every movie has to win an Oscar. That's the most important thing. When you watch a specific movie, you gotta know what you're signing up for. And when you're putting on Bad Boys or any of these buddy cop drama, buddy cop films in general, you gotta know what you're signing up for. And if you don't, if you go into a movie expecting to hate it, you're gonna hate it. Big, big surprise there. The thing I love about obviously Bad Boys is is the characters again. You know, we have uh, Martin Lawrence and, and Will Smith. We have. Will Smith's playing Mike Lowry. Mike Lowry. Mike Lowry. Mike Lowry. Mike Lowry. And Will Smith, one of the all-time acting goats, one of the best ever, in the 90s cemented him as a star and a global icon, starting with Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and his TV show that started in the early 90s, and then his budding film career, which was basically started with Bad Boys. He was in movies, but Bad Boys launched him into Men in Black, Independence Day, Enemy of the State, Wild West, plus his hip-hop career, two going on at the same time. Bad Boys was that major film that catapulted his career and helped Will get all of those big roles. Will Smith had been in some, some supporting roles in a couple of dramas actually and he was he showed that he had some real acting chops and obviously there are some dramatic uh, moments in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air uh, but he's he's a great comedic actor uh, naturally. And then Bad Boys showed that he can lead a film. They originally had Arsenio Hall in mind for this movie uh, but he turned it down and then they went to Will Smith and I, I think that Will Smith has... So much charm and personality and charisma. And the moment he was given a chance to lead a movie, uh, you knew that he was going to be a star. Yeah, I mean, Martin Lawrence, he's a comedy legend, but again, it's Will Smith who's the superstar. But not everyone ages like Will Smith, which is why Martin Lawrence still isn't really getting as much work as he used to because he's a legend, I swear. I love this guy. I love me some prime Martin Lawrence, especially the 90s. He's blown up. He also had his TV show, Martin, which was a great show, and that got him some stardom. Uh, Blue Streak is hilarious. Martin Lawrence's pizza delivery scene in Blue Streak yeah, yeah. kills with me the, every time <laughs> with the teeth and the converses the and the dance moves. And last time I left this pizza here, it magically disappeared. Disappear. <laughs> <laughs> I can't leave it over there with Shamu. So this guy is absolutely hysterical in every scene he's in. And these two just have such amazing chemistry on camera. Yeah, the bickering between them two is just hysterical. It's like they're they're a married couple half the time. And uh, they have, they draw off each other so much. And apparently the script was horrible. And so Michael Bay would just ask them to riff off each other and, and come up with their own dialogue on the spot and improvise a lot. So a, a, a large portion of the dialogue in this film, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence improvised. And again, we have counter characters here. We have Mike Lowry, who's a trust fund kid. It's, this guy is very rich and well off, and he doesn't have to be a cop. But he, he chooses to do police work because he loves it so much. And he wanted to dedicate his life to bettering his community and getting criminals off the street. So even though he lives a glamorous lifestyle, he's still a selfless person for taking a high-risk job when he could literally do anything he wants and with his money and time. And then Martin Lawrence plays that, like, family man. He's married. He has kids. He's an honest cop, not trying to get into too much trouble. In a way, they both kind of want what the other person has, where Mike, he seems to be a little lonely in his life, even though he has all the money, and and sleeps with uh, plenty of women. And then Marcus, you know, he has the family and kids, but he can't help but be a little jealous of... The, the bachelor life that Mike is living. Yeah, the opening scene perfectly shows what this relationship is like and what these characters are like. So we have these cool shots of the landscape with a, with a sunset. Miami. Yeah, and then uh, in Miami and then Mike is driving his Porsche 911 Turbo and Marcus is eating a burger and spilling french fries on the seat. <laughs> and we learn that Marcus is married, which to Marcus means that you sleep together with your wife but you never get anything. And then, <laughs> and then they get, then they're they're bickering about the french fries and it's you can tell that they've been a, a Uh, a partnership for years and they've known each other for a long time because they're just bickering like a married couple and then they're getting carjacked and while they're getting carjacked they're still arguing about the french fries Mm. like that like these two guys are holding guns to them and they don't even care they're still on the french fry thing but that's obviously what leads to them uh get fighting back and and getting the the edge over them but we see this hilarious married couple functioning this dysfunctional relationship yeah their chemistry is why the movie works in the first place and that scene actually was not in originally filmed they filmed the whole movie they were done with production and then they the opening scene they originally had was pretty serious and, and action-centric and they felt it didn't it didn't feel right for the tone of the movie and it, it wasn't very fun and so several weeks after the movie wrapped they actually rewrote the opening and they filmed this scene and then they felt that it was a better introduction to the relationship because they they learned that the strength of the movie was the relationship between between this pair and again, it's not the greatest movie ever made, but I think it's a solid plot. We have an inside job of a of a heroin bust that the drug evidence gets stolen from the police headquarters and the entire department's going to be dissolved unless Mike Lowry and Marcus, Mike Lowry, Mike Lowry find the drugs uh, or else and because internal affairs is involved and they're going to shut down the department. Yeah. And I think Joe Pantigliano is hysterical in this movie as like the pinnacle of angry captains. Of police forces in movies and he's just he brings so much energy and and he's hysterical and i think he's in the new one i'm, I'm curious yeah he's in it yeah, yeah he's still their, their boss and he plays a great boss and there's that scene where he's chewing them out while he's he's shooting basketball and then he keeps missing and he's like i was making i was making them all in before you two showed up <laughs> <laughs> and we have uh checky cairo who plays a villain in a lot of movies he's actually super effective as a villain as the, uh, uh, the foreign villain. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's even in a James Bond movies in Goldeneye. He plays like a Russian ambassador, I think. Hmm. Uh, but he has also just positive, great characters in the core and the Patriot, but he's an awesome actor. He's French, but I think he was born in a, in one of the, in an Eastern European country, but he's, he's got that great French accent and he's menacing on camera. He plays like this mastermind that, that planned this heist from the headquarters to get the heroin. And then Tia Leone plays Julie, and This is her big major breakout in film as well. And, uh, you've seen her in, uh, in plenty of things if you don't recognize her by name. And now she has her own show, Madam Secretary. But I think she's always been a really strong supporting actor in all the films she's been in. Basically, her character witnesses a murder uh, taken out and carried out by the people who robbed the police headquarters. And she's involved in this giant crime conspiracy now. And it's funny because she has to hide out with Mike Lowry. But Marcus is at Mike Lowry's apartment where she goes there because it's her friend was uh, connected to Mike Lowry. So she had never met Mike. Yeah, but she knew who his name and knew where he lived. And we have this hilarious uh, short part of the movie where Mike and Marcus have to kind of switch roles. <laughs> and this is funny because it kind of flips the buddy cop genre in its head where we finally get to see like what these uh, contrasting partners actually really think about each other and feel like about each other because as they're impersonating each other, they just get in quips of, of the other person while they're acting out as that other person yeah they're like belittling themselves acting as the other person it's so funny yeah it's a pretty good time i like it a lot but obviously and there's the funny scene where she's in the apartment and and photos of of mike are all over the apartment <laughs> <laughs> and, and marcus just marcus if he's games like nope, no, no <laughs> he's like i just have photos of my friends <laughs> which obviously is a seinfeld episode but it's still funny yeah it's a good joke it, it, it hits real hard and uh I, one of my favorite parts about this movie is the score it's one of those great 90s action scores and it's actually by Mark Mancina who did a uh, Con Air and Speed and he kind of like defined the the music of the 90s action and it's just like got those like cheesy synthy riffs that like now, you can't. Nowadays they wouldn't work, but back then they they were the best music for these kinds of movies. Yeah, they have a really good players too. I'm pretty sure there's like a Tupac song on the on the movie too. Oh yeah, they had a whole uh, slew of artists make a, a record together uh, and released it as the ba- Bad Boy soundtrack. They didn't actually release the comp- the composed music for the film at all. They just made a, a mix of of different songs. Yeah, and this is my favorite Bad Boys of the trilogy. Obviously, the production value isn't as high as two and three, but I mean, this is the original. The, the other two try to capture it. It's obviously over-stylized at times and a little much sometimes, but I love it, and I love the characters and really getting the origin of them and, like, the start of their story, and it's just a timeless movie for me. Yeah, it's sometimes you just got to turn your brain off and watch a movie, and if you do it with this one, it's always fun and entertaining, and that's all you ask for sometimes. Next up, we have The Nice Guys, released on May 20th, 2016, directed by Shane Black written by Shane Black and Anthony Bagarozzi. This film stars Ryan Gosling, Russell Crowe, Angry Rice, and Matt Bomer. This film had a budget of $50 million and a worldwide box office of $62 million. In 1970s Los Angeles, a mismatched pair of private eyes investigate a missing girl and the mysterious death of a porn star. The Nice Guys is a terrific and very underrated movie. Uh, it's got such fantastic comedic performances from Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling and It's just a great time. It transports you to the 70s in the seedy parts of L.A., and I just adore this movie. It is criminally underrated. Ooh, nice. I don't know how it only made sixty-two million million. Again, I think it's because... I can tell you why. People don't see original movies anymore. It's that, but also I think it's the studio's fault with the date they they chose to release the film because The Nice Guys came out the same time that Captain America's Civil War and Neighbors 2 were out. And so those two films... I think had the same audience as the nice guys. And I think most of those people were just like, let's go see the new Captain America movie. So I think if they had released this on a different date, it would have made a lot more money. Maybe. Because, man, when I saw... when I, I didn't even have to see a trailer to know I was going to see this movie. I mean, mm-hmm. Shane Black, we talked about him earlier. Lethal Weapon. And before this, he made Iron Man 3. So he's a great writer, a great director. And this movie, it's, it's dare I say, a perfect film. Pretty damn close. Uh, the comedy, again, is on point. It's an incredible script, and it seemed to pull off the overused Hollywood, like, witty banter, witty one-liners that we see pretty much in every movie now. That's kind of like the new style that we see in a lot of mainstream films, but he did it in such an effective way, and the performances, specifically of Ryan Gosling in this... He is so freaking funny, and he really shows in this film specifically his physical comedy in this movie yeah. is hysterical. I mean, I love the scenes where he, he cuts his wrist on the glass when he tries to break into the, into the door. He's like, that's a lot of blood. That's a lot of blood. And he passes out. And then uh, Jackson breaks Holland's arm. I love that because he's he's trying to grab his arm, and Ryan Gosling's like, no, no. And, like, ah. and then uh, when... Uh, Holland's taking a deuce, and then Jackson interrupts him, and he, he's trying to keep the, the door open with his foot, <laughs> and then the cigarette falls down into his pants. And then the scene where he, he drunkenly falls down that hill, and he finds that dead body when he lights cigarette. his cigarette. His silent reaction of terror and trying to call to somebody, is, it's so perfect. Yeah, and I, um, my favorite one is when um, they're in the shootout, and, and, and Healy doesn't have his gun. And March has a gun, and he's like, Quick, throw me a gun. So he throws a gun to him, and he throws it through the window. (laughs) (laughs) And fun fact about that dead body that he finds is actually Robert Downey Jr. in a cameo role. They put a beard on him and covered him with blood. So if you look at that movie again... That dead body is actually Robert Downey Jr. No freaking way. Which makes sense because obviously he's homies and buddies with Shane Black. And Shane Black is, is a big part in Robert Downey Jr.'s comeback career because he put him in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in 2005, which was a really great movie. And it was a big movie for Downey coming out of prison and he was not getting that many big roles. And was that his was first lead role. His first lead role or co-lead if you want to call it and that led to Iron Man. I love Gosling's character of March in this film because it's so against type for him where March is just like an idiot and he's like an hapless private detective. He Half the time... It doesn't seem like he even knows what he's doing. He's he's a coward. He screams or cowards whenever there's like danger or violence. And he he's, he whines like a baby when, when Healy's about to break his arm. And I think it was just so refreshing to see uh, Ryan Gosling play a character like this. And with Shane Black being the writer, we see a lot of similarities between Lethal Weapon and the nice guys, I think, with the characters specifically. Holland reminds me of Riggs. They both have a wife who had passed away previously. Unfortunately for Holland it's a really sad situation because his wife died in a house burning their house burning down in, and Holland has this disability where he can't smell which Shane Black uses effectively in in you know traumatic and comedic situations at the same time yeah because when he first tells Jackson about it Jackson laughs at him he's like oh you're a detective and you can't smell this keeps getting better but then he he turns it upside down and it becomes a very tragic uh, part of his of his life. They're both depressed from this, obviously, the recent death of their spouse, and he's also an alcoholic and unstable at times. But unlike Riggs, who's, you know, a highly trained person, Holland is terrible at his job as a private eye, and (laughs) he's very morally low as a person because he has no problem taking advantage of that that old senile woman who says her husband's been missing ever since his funeral. Even though he's in an urn (laughs) above (laughs) the fireplace, he has no problem taking her money, yeah. And Russell Crowe is a great contrast to him because he's a, a morally ambiguous character because he seems like a, a good guy for the most part and he tries to do the right thing for the most part. But he also does some shady things like first of all his job is he beats people up for a living and he sends message by sending messages to people for other people. And I think that he he, he kind of is the hero of the movie until at the biggest moment where he purposely kills that, that blue face guy and and, uh, suffocates him on the road and he lies to uh, Holland's daughter telling her that he died on his own so I think that was a a morally gray area where uh, the character he has a very dark side to him and for the most part he keeps it hidden but there are flourishes of that for sure and speaking of Holland's daughter um, she's played by angry rice who's awesome in this role and she's one of the funniest parts of the film and she has a bunch of great scenes that she kind of steals and a ton of great dialogue and i think she's somebody to keep an eye on for the future in film yeah her and gosling going back and forth with each other is really great and entertaining and she's like a very mature person for her age and seems to be more adept at at holland's job than he is and then they have a great villain johnny boy in this movie played by matt bomer is just terrifying because first of all i think Shane Black was really smart where Johnny Boy doesn't show up about until about an hour, 20 minutes into the movie, but before he shows up, people just talk about him. Like People keep hinting at Johnny Boy and saying that he's coming and that the boss hired Johnny Boy, and you're like, who is Johnny Boy? And then when he starts doing his job, you see how dangerous and lethal this guy really is. And Basically, the plot of the film is Holland gets hired to find a missing girl and Misty March, a, a murdered porn star, and Black reveals her death in the beginning of the film actually through the young kid through a young kid's perspective where he's ogling her in a magazine but then she comes crashing down with her car and she and she dies and he finds her in a similar position in the magazine but he respectfully covers her body up you know being a nice guy so it's a murder mystery film about her and also a missing character called Amelia and they end up working together to find what's going on with with this murder and this mystery and this missing girl and we find out later on that spoiler alert that the, the lead bad Batty in this film, the lead villain is uh, Judith Cutner, who actually is a high-ranking official in the United States Department of Justice, and she actually hires the nice guys, if you want to call them that, uh, to find her daughter, not realizing that they'd be clever enough to figure out the whole plot. Yeah, and her daughter made a snuff film with her friends to detailing the corruption that her mother has in her life, and, and the whole plan is to release the film during a, a big automobile showing and this movie's so good. I mean, every every joke hits. It's all fun dialogue. It's hysterical. The the chemistry between Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling is off the charts. They're so good together. We have this incredibly dumb character played by Ryan Gosling, which is a, a change of pace for him because he's always playing these, these dark, brooding characters who don't say too much dialogue, but he <laughs> seems to not show up in this film, which is a good thing. And then Russell Crowe, uh, he kind of plays like... The version of himself during interviews because he hates getting interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just it's just, just an great, American accent. It's a great back and forth. Yeah, they're so great together, and I was so disappointed to see how um, how poorly it performed at the box office. I think it barely made more than the production. So it it didn't ma- it lost money for the studio big time. Yeah, because he set it up for a sequel by yeah. having them... Ha- they had like their own production company called The Nice Guys now. If that had been a, a franchise, I mean, it would have been so fun to see new films with them in it. It is a great film on its own, and it's one of my favorite buddy cop movies, and it's definitely up there for all time. Both Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling actually grew up as child actors, and they both dropped out of high school. And ironically, for how talented the both of them are neither of them ever had formal training in the craft of acting next up we have the other guys released august 6th 2010 written and directed by adam mckay and co-written by chris henchy this film stars will ferrell mark Wahlberg, ava mendez and michael keaton it grossed 170 million dollars on a budget of 100 million unlike their heroic counterparts on the force desk-bound nypd detectives gamble and hoyt's Garner no headlines as they work day to day When a seemingly minor case turns out to be a big deal The two cops get the opportunity To finally prove to their comrades That they have the right stuff The Other Guys is an ultra-parody Of the buddy cop genre Which allows this over-the-top ridiculous humor But it also features like Legitimate heavyweight actors I mean, Marky Mark, he's an Oscar nominee Will Ferrell is just a great uh, comedic actor, Ava Mendez is awesome Michael Keaton Freaking Batman, Oscar winner. Damon Wayans, cameos from Dwayne Johnson, Samuel L. Jackson, plus Derek Jeter's in there. So like, Steve Coogan's in it. Yeah, so we have some legit stars in this movie. Mm-hmm. On paper, it shouldn't work, but it's just so funny because Adam McKay is actually a very talented and, and a fantastic director. If you've seen Vice, it's his best movie, and he also made the big short, so he doesn't just do comedy. This is one of my favorite collaborations with him and Will Ferrell. They actually met on the set of SNL. Adam McKay was a writer on SNL, and he and Will Ferrell got along really well. They had similar senses of humor and they would write sketches. So, a lot of Will Ferrell's sketches on SNL were co written by Adam McKay. A lot of the characters were co created by Adam McKay. So, they've actually had a very long, flourishing friendship. The thing with the other guys, it's obviously not the best movie ever made and it gets a lot of hate. I mean, it's, it does, like, yeah. it's like six, it's really got a six rating on uh, IMDb, which is pretty low. But, I mean, the other guys, it knows what it wants to be, and you have to go into this movie accepting that. You can't go into the other guys expecting to see terrific writing and an amazing plot. This is just a bunch of actors having a blast on camera, and if you open yourself up to it, it's so fun. And just look at the posters. It's Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell like jumping in the air, firing guns. It's just ridiculous and over the top. And that's what the tone of the movie is because this essentially this movie is it just subverts all the cliches of cop movies where you have the loose cannon, out of control cop, Mark Wahlberg, and then the goody two shoes uh, uh, boy scout cop, Will Ferrell. But they're dialed the notches to eleven for each of them in both regards. And it's just they and they set up each scene where they allow the actors to improvise and just have fun and see what happens with each scene and there's so much comedy in this movie that you can tell they just they mind from doing the scene over and over again and I just this film just cracks me up like it's got such Such great moments, like the good cop, bad cop scene. It's the bad cop, worst cop. Yeah, I thought it was bad cop, bad cop. And then, because Wahlberg is just like being kind of a jerk. And then, he's like, I'll speak to him. He seems reasonable. And then, Will Ferrell just starts screaming. He's like, I saw what you were doing. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to top that. (laughs) And the the whole opening of the film is just the most ridiculous satire on over-the-top action movies and buddy cop hero movies. We have Dancing and Highsmith, who are celebrated despite... Destroying everything in every 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 case they have, they 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 destroy the city and they cause twelve million dollars worth of damage over a guy who has a quarter pound of weed, <laughs> and it's played by Sam Jackson and Dwayne Johnson. And I wish, I wish the marketing team didn't include them in the trailer because you can you imagine going to the theater not knowing that and not knowing that sam jackson and dwayne johnson are in the first ten time that would that would have been amazing and, and their characters are so funny because like they're in the precinct and they, they're wearing like gold medals yeah he's like don't talk to me if i want you to talk i'll shove my hand up your ass and I'll move your mouth like a puppet he's like yes sir yeah absolutely <laughs> and their characters just show like the over arrogance and extreme hubris of these action stars who think they can do anything and they they jump 30 stories from a skyscraper thinking they'll land in bushes fine and they die yeah they they play that Foo Fighters song there goes my hero <laughs> and they fall and they just smash into the pavement it's so great because it's like all right our a squad's dead now we need like our d squad because they're not even the b squad they're not nah. the c squad they are like the b squad and they we, they have to become the a squad now and alan I, it's so funny i think he's one of will ferrell's most underrated characters because He's so innocent and in naive and in like a such a goody two shoes, but he has such a dark past. How he was he used to be a pimp named Gator. <laughs> Gator, don't play that. <laughs> Gator, don't play that. Also, it's just like the most the most ridiculous sequence in his backstory. And then also there's the fact that for some reason, incredibly hot women. Are gravitate towards uh, Alan for absolutely no apparent reason at all. And he has a completely disproportionately attractive wife with Ava Mendez, who yeah. Terry's in love with. Yeah, <laughs> and his ex-wife, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> and he's always belittling Ava <laughs> Mendes. <laughs> <laughs> he's like you look like trash <laughs> and then terry's <laughs> just hysterical too by mark Wahlberg. i think this is one of his early comedy roles this is his first comedy, his comedy his first role. Comedy his role. first comedy so he actually did a really good job because obviously ted's great as well too but this is yeah. before that yeah he made ted he, now he's done daddy's home he did instant family so he, he found this new genre that he's actually very good at and also very successful at yeah he's really fun in it and uh he's this Again, he's kind of like Riggs where he's like a highly trained, skilled yeah. officer, but he has that horrible mistake where he shot Jeter in I'ma- the leg. <laughs> Imagine where you'd be in your career if you hadn't shot Jeter. <laughs> it's so funny. It's ridiculous. And Jeter has a cameo in this where he shoots him in the leg. You know, my probably my favorite part of the movie is when um, Steve Coogan's character, the, the villain... He, uh, they go to his office to, to question him, and then he just starts briming them with tickets to different things. Like, he, they get Lakers uh, floor seats. He's like, Jersey Boys or Mama Mia? <laughs> then it <he> cuts <laughs> to Jersey Boys <laughs> <laughs> and the cucumber water. <laughs> well, I was really uh, looking forward to the cucumber water. <laughs> Obviously, like, the plot's not the best in the world, but it doesn't matter because it's all about setting it up and they're They're having fun with it, which is what's important. like it's it's all about just being entertained. and this movie is endlessly entertaining. And again, we if you open yourself up to every movie, that's the thing. You don't have to connect with the movie. You don't have to uh personally relate to people in movies. If you just open yourself up to a story, no matter how ridiculous it is, you're gonna have a good time if it's something like this exactly. I mean, I'm a peacock. You gotta let me fly. It's ridiculous. And then Michael Keaton's character constantly quoting TLC. It's so dumb, but it works, and it's so funny. I love that that whispering fight they get in at the at the wake where they're all like whisk, whispering, arguing. They're trying to figure out who's they're trying to figure out who's going to be the new A team at their funeral. And then the whole concept of Terry going to uh, confront his girlfriend at that ballet. And the whole concept of him is, is he's making fun of this ballet dancer, the male ballet dancer, and he just does a ballet act. Just as, He's kind of like a counter ironic joke the entire film. She's at the art show, and he's making fun of like all this artsy-smarty stuff, and then he, he goes off on this amazing, intelligent tangent about the design of the coffee table. And he's like, I studied, I took a few classes just so I could make fun of people about it. <laughs> And then also, like when his girlfriend, when his ex girlfriend's dancing in ballet class, and she has a male partner, he's like, "What is this? Your new boyfriend?" <laughs> he's like, "Is this guy bothering you?" He's like, "If you're with me, you don't have to be here shaking it for, for dollar bills." <laughs> Terry, it's ballet class. It, it's just funny. I mean, we could go on and on with the jokes in this movie, but it's just nonstop funny. If I mean, I get that not everyone loves Will Ferrell movies. I get not everyone loves Mark Wahlberg, but you know what? I love them both, and it's obviously the characters that make this movie like buddy cop movie that we're talking about. It's all about the characters, and they, they kill it in this movie, yeah. and they have awesome chemistry. Exactly. This movie's just a good time, and if you open yourself up to it, you'll laugh your ass off. I mean, they talk about homeless orgies in a Prius. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, it ends with closing credits that Adam McKay, of course, had to put in where it features cleverly animated financial facts Uh, talking about the recent financial meltdown, which uh, was definitely meticulously researched. Oh yeah, this film came out right after it, so it was very relevant, because the villain was involved in that kind of scheme. Die Hard with a Vengeance, released on May 19th, 1995, directed by John McTiernan, written by Jonathan Hensley and Roderick Thorpe. This film stars Bruce Willis, Jeremy Irons, Samuel L. Jackson, and Graham Greene. This film had a budget of $90 million and a worldwide box office of $366 million. A mysterious terrorist targets recently fired NYPD Lieutenant John McClane while playing a deadly game with the citizens of New York City. John McClane and a savvy Harlem store owner team up to stay one step ahead of the terrorist. This might be my favorite movie in this episode, and it's easily the second best Die Hard movie, and you could argue it's as good as Die Hard the first one because this movie is a perfect action film in it's got great characters, a fantastic story, another excellent villain, thrilling set pieces and action scenes, and it's everything you paid for in a Die Hard movie. I think why it's so good is because it wasn't supposed to be a Die Hard movie. This is a script called Simon Says. It had nothing to do with John McClane or the franchise in general, but they ended up adapting it into like a John McClane story, so the real writer of the screenplay... Jonathan Hensley, he had, he let them adapt his screenplay to work with the characters created by R- Roderick Thorpe, so that's why I both get credit on the script. And I like this movie because Die Hard one's, I think, the, the one of the most perfect action movies ever made. Die Hard is very good, but they re- raise the stakes even more in this film. Um, and the script is actually very good. Yeah, I think in terms of the stakes, it's just it's not just that, but also I think there are two big changes in this movie for a Die Hard movie where. First of all, you pair up John McClane with another character, especially one who's much different from him, and that adds a lot of depth opportunity for uh, character moments and character building, and it's also pretty funny at times. And then also, this film is not centered in one location. The first film, obviously, in Nakatomi Tower, the second film at the airport, so I think they were believing that the Die Hard movie had to be set at one location, but ultimately Die Hard works because of John McClane. And so with this film, there is no location. It's just New York City. So they expanded the scope of the movie and of the idea of a of a diehard film. I think that adds the strength to this film. Also, we finally get to see John McClane in New York City. Exactly. He's in his natural habitat, which ironically he had never been in in the first two movies. And since... Coming back to NYPD, his character has become a mess. He's been transferred back to NYPD. He's been suspended. He's become an alcoholic, and his his wife has left him. So this guy's had a, a rocky couple of years. And also, I think the best part of the film is it's, it's a very clever script and fun for the audience because it makes you think. I mean, we have these great, fun riddles, and we're on this mystery with with uh, McLean and Zeus trying to help figure out what these riddles mean, and they're so fun to try to decipher for yourself, even though some of them you can't, but some of them you actually can work out. That bucket one, I'm always, uh, sometimes I'll think of the bucket one, and I'm like, how does, that? how does it work again? I know it. You want to hear it? So this is the water jug riddle, how I would solve it. So you have a three-gallon jug and a five-gallon jug, and you need to make exactly four gallons. You fill the three-gallon jug and pour it into the five-gallon jug. You fill the three-gallon jug again and pour two of its three gallons into the five-gallon jug leaving one gallon left in the three-gallon jug. Empty the five-gallon jug. Pour the one gallon of water remaining in the three-gallon jug into the empty five-gallon jug. That five-gallon jug will now have exactly one gallon. Fill up the three-gallon jug again fully and then pour that into the five-gallon jug and you have four gallons total inside the five-gallon jug. Nice. This script is so fun and it keeps you guessing and it's endlessly entertaining and it also has a fantastic twist because the first half of this movie, we think that Simon we learn that he's Hans Gruber's brother and we think that Simon his whole plan is a way as a sick twisted way to get back at John McClane and so we think this whole um, game they have playing and all all the bombs he has placed around the city is all for John but ultimately we learn halfway through the film it's all a distraction which is keeping the the authorities busy so that he and his team can rob the Federal Reserve Bank in New York so it's this brilliant Amazing setup where it's not just random terrorist attacks. Simon is just like his brother. He's a he's a brilliant thief And the thing about the riddles and everything they're fun and they seem to the characters that they're super important But really they're kind of pointless because no matter what kind of riddle he creates. They're basically Almost pointless to solve them because no matter what Simon's gonna create destruction. This is shown perfectly where they pretty much solve one of the riddles But they're a little late, but then he also says you didn't say Simon Says, so he does it anyways. So basically, they're all futile in a way because he's going to create this destruction because he needs the distraction. It's just to add to the distraction. Also, it's, I think it's just a way to torment McClane at the same time. Yeah, exactly. He's, 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 killing, he's killing two birds with one stone. And Sam Jackson is fantastic in this movie, an, another one of his first early major roles. And I think he's excellent as Zeus, and he brings a lot of character and depth and entertaining um, humor and just wisecracks so he's very similar to john mcclain but they clash which is a lot of fun yeah bruce is obviously great and reliable reclaiming his role as john mcclain but sam jackson he truly shines in this movie he steals pretty much every single scene that he's in he brings so much energy to the role and obviously I, every time i see this i can't help but see that he based the look and personality off malcolm x obviously the glasses are very similar they have similar builds Their hair is short um plus he has the very bold racial justice dialogue constantly throughout the film The producers initially wanted Lawrence Fishburne for this role, but uh, Fishburne wanted more money than they were willing to pay. And so they weren't sure about hiring him. And then the producers heard about Sam Jackson in this movie, Pulp Fiction, which is coming out. And so they were like, okay, let's see this actor in this film that just premiered and make a decision. And so they watched Pulp Fiction, loved Sam Jackson so much in that film that they decided to offer the role with the support of Bruce Willis who co-starred with him in Pulp Fiction. And so because of that, uh, Lawrence Fishburne lost out on the role of, uh, of Zeus. Ironically, Lawrence Fishburne was Quentin Tarantino's first choice to play Jules, but he turned the film down because it wasn't a leading role, it was a supporting role. Yeah, I think we've talked multiple times all the roles that Lawrence Fishburne has turned down, which yeah. is insane. Yeah, he ended up making it obviously with The Matrix. And so Simon's biggest strength and weakness are both his arrogance, and that's clear towards the end of the film when McLean and Zeus are tied up on top of the bomb on, on the boat, and he's finally getting and Simon's getting away, and he he tosses the aspirin at McLean, thinking, well, whatever, he's gonna die anyways. Here's this this aspirin, but the aspirin leads McLean and Zeus and the cops after they escape the bomb to Simon and where the rest of the bad guys are. Yeah, John McLean, he's a lot smarter than everyone thinks he is, and he shows it with a scene like that. And we have this epic ending battle of a helicopter versus a helicopter, which is nuts. It's a great action sequence. It's obviously over the top, but hey, this entire movie is over the top. Most of what you see in this movie is practical effects. Yes, there is some CGI, like the water in the tunnel. That's a CGI shot. But but for the most part, all the explosions, all the crashes, all the stunt work, uh, it's all in-camera practical. And I think they did a fantastic job with this movie. And Because they had a, a large budget, they were able to really put everything they wanted into this film. And I think the reason why this movie works so well is because John McTiernan, the director of the first Die Hard, made this one. He didn't make the second film, but he made this one. So you can see his strength as a director is what made a difference between the, the second and third film. And the way that John McClane and Zeus meet is pretty wild. It's, it's uh John McClane is asked by Simon to wear this very racist, racist sign on his body in the middle of Harlem which obviously is going to get him into serious, violent trouble if Zeus doesn't step in and they end up getting attacked by by the locals in, in Zeus's neighborhood, but he, he manages to save him. And this causes Simon to want Zeus to be a part of all of these riddles and part of John McClane's team, and even if they don't answer the phones together, then it doesn't count as them solving the riddles. They actually had nothing written on the sign when they filmed this, and... Because they didn't want to offend anyone, because it's a very offensive uh, uh, phrase that's written on the sign. And so on set, it was blank, and then they CGI'd the text afterwards in post-production. Jeremy Irons had big shoes to fill, and I think he did a fantastic job as Simon, Hans Gruenberg's brother. He's just as commanding and, uh, and excellent on screen as Alan Rickman was. And I think this is my second favorite Die Hard movie. Obviously, we're going to do Die Hard, the original, pretty soon. So don't worry, everybody. We <laughs> love Die Hard a lot. So we'll cover that soon. But Die Hard with a Vengeance is a fantastic movie. It's a fantastic sequel. Sam L. and Bruce Willis bring it. Jeremy Irons is great. Awesome plot. Awesome action. It's a classic. Next up, we have Hot Fuzz. Directed and written by Edgar Wright and co-written by Simon Pegg. This film stars Simon Pegg, Martin Freeman, Nick Frost, Jim Broadbent, Olivia Colman, and Timothy Dalton. This film grossed $80 million on a budget of $8 million, so it was a big hit. Hutshot police officer Nicholas Angel smells foul play when the residents of a sleepy Somerset village start to die in terrible accidents. Something's afoot, but can he and daft local police officer Danny Butterman find out what it is? Hut Fuzz might be the best movie on this list. It's Edgar Wright and Edgar Wright is a genius filmmaker I understand not everyone likes his movies it's a particular sense of humor it's kind of like Wes Anderson films but I'm not even kidding when I say Hut Fuzz might even be his best movie and might be the best in their three flavors Canetto trilogy which we will do a full episode on those three movies at some point argue that Um, I don't care if that makes me sound biased but Edgar Wright needs to be appreciated for the incredible and unique filmmaker that he is and of course, this script, like usual of all of his movies, is very clever. Every single joke lands. It's very well shot. Cinematography is on point. It's stylized. Amazing editing and, and cinematic style of Edgar Wright is, is loud in this film. Simon Pegg proved that he can lead a movie. I just love every single thing about this movie. Yeah, and this movie is it's both a spoof and an example of uh, expressing their love of action movies because, yes, this is they're subverting the genre and... And this whole film itself is a parody of the buddy cop action movies, but you can tell that they really loved these films, and they also uh, showed their love for it. And Edgar Wright is is so smart with his filmmaking. And my favorite way they parody the action films is uh, Edgar Wright takes that super fast-paced editing that that you see in action movies when characters are like gearing up for a firefight, and it's like all these close-ups of them. Loading like guns and, and Commando. Yeah, and gearing up with these guns and, and all these bullets. And then he takes that editing cliche and he, he puts it in the most mundane situations, which is so funny. The whole point of Hot Fuzz is to pay homage and parody buddy cop movies and over-the-top action movies of the 80s and 90s. But it's so fun to see it with British roots and characters and a British voice with an English filmmaker. And Edgar, you can say, he pokes fun at a lot of these movies, but really he's embracing them like... The this, this scene where they're talking about bad boys or point break, and he's like, no, which one do you want to watch first? And then he's like, you never shot your, your gun in the air and screamed, uh and then he ends up doing it in the movie. Yeah, like, so, that's his biggest dream. Yeah, and he, he does it. it. It's so fun, and it really makes you feel like you're part of the story and in on every joke, because the way he writes, it's like constant, like, inside jokes with the characters and with the audience, and you just feel a part of the story. Yeah, and you feel uh, a little bit of an inspiration from another famous British film, uh, The Wicker Man, where... Uh, The lead character travels to this small town and he ends up finding and discovering that the entire town is much darker and dangerous than he initially thought. He brought into this film that same idea and theme where all the residents of, of Sanford are actually part of this group which is carrying out these murders in order to keep, or I mean accidents in order to keep Sanford ranked as the safest town in the country. A really cool fact is that Edgar Wright filmed this movie in his hometown of Wells where he grew up so I'm sure it was fun for him to make a movie in his own town. And Simon Pegg and Nick are perfect comedic partners. We've obviously seen them in multiple movies together now. And Simon Pegg, he's clearly a very talented guy, and this showed that he can lead a movie. And the first act of this movie is perfect. And actually, all three acts are, are amazing. And I love the first act though, just setting up Sergeant Angel and all the all the funny scenes, like the scene where he's telling his ex girlfriend that he's leaving town, and they're all all the CSI people and investigators are wearing the same outfit. A cool fact is that. His, the actress who plays his ex girlfriend is actually Kate Blanchett, and it's a cameo role that you don't know it's her because she's wearing the uh, hazmat suit and a mask, but that's really Kate Blanchett in the scene. No, I think about it, it does seem like her. Yeah, and then I love the scene at the precinct where he plays this super cop and everyone's sick of him, even everyone in the. In the police station, we have this amazing back to back to back cameo appearance of superior officers with Martin Freeman, Steve Coogan, and then Bill Nye. And they, they transfer him from the loud, busy streets of London where he's making everyone look bad and they send him to this tiny village of Sanford to keep him out of the way. And it's it's just such a funny concept. Yeah, in Sanford, like the biggest uh, situation is a, a missing goose and the uh, a, mis- a missing swan. The missing swan, but also um, the human robot. Yeah, the robot. <laughs> <laughs> But this movie has some really great gore, like a lot of, all the death scenes, they're very graphic, and Edgar Wright obviously loves films with gore, and he throws it in whenever he can, and he's really good at it, because this movie's a lot of fun, but then it it can be pretty disturbing at times, and uh, Timothy Dalton also is great as the villain in this movie, he is actually a former Bond, he was, he played Bond in two movies in the 80s, and people didn't really love him as Bond. He was more of a comedic-centered comedic centered performance when he played it, but uh, I think he's a fantastic actor, and he really showed how talented he was with this movie. He's also in Doctor Who. He's a big role in that, that franchise, too. Yeah, and he's in the show Penny Dreadful, which is really good. So he's actually a great actor, and he's yeah. awesome in this movie. He's one of the best parts of the movie, honestly, because this film has a great mystery around it, in Edgar Wright, his plot does such an effective job of hiding who the killer or killers are from the audience for pretty much the entire film. And it's a a modern whodunit with what seems to be at least a dozen suspects. And we don't know who's doing the, the accidents and the killings. And it's just there's this weird vibe throughout the entire town where all these people are getting killed, but somehow they're all just being labeled as accidents. Yeah, and this also has this really touching relationship between Angel and Danny where angel's kind of stuck with this bumbling kind of fool of a cop and he's only a cop because his dad is the captain of the police force and so obviously nepotism and he doesn't really he doesn't fit the bill as a police officer in any way but ultimately throughout the film they do develop a relationship and a bond and a friendship and there's that funny scene where after angel beats up that big guy and danny finds him he's like did you say a funny line yeah, after I knocked him out, I said, Toms over." <laughs> yeah, because he hate Angel hates him at first, and all Danny wants to do is be his friend and learn about all the stories of him being a hotshot uh, super cop in London. And then they grow to build this great friendship, and they become best friends. And then Angel needs Danny, and we have these outrageous shootouts, and <laughs> the action's actually great. But also, I think he just had. I think Edgar Wright's plan was to use as many bullets as possible in this movie because yeah. it reminds me a lot of of the old Star Wars films where. All the, all the people with guns in this movie, they're like stormtroopers trying to shoot an important character in Yeah, Star they can't Wars. hit. They can't hit anything. And also, one of the best parts of the movie, going back to the editing, is when Angel is gearing up for this big shootout. He must load, like, 20 different guns. It's just <laughs> gun after gun after gun <laughs> after gun. He's riding a horse. <laughs> <laughs> he's got so many bullets and guns strapped to his body, it's absolutely ridiculous. But it's so funny. But Edgar Wright, we'll, we're going to do a whole episode on this guy and we'll do the Three three Flavors Canary Trilogy, but he's such a great director because he, these little sequences that you don't really notice when you're watching it they just bring him to a new level. Like, for example, just his, his sequences of time passing. So when Angel gets reassigned to the new town, he has Edgar Wright has this great uh, montage where he's carrying his plant, he's at the train station, and he has just quick daylight, nighttime, train, boom, 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 new place. And it effectively shows, it tells the story of him traveling in like 10 seconds. And it's it's artistic and highly stylized. And it's just got Edgar Wright written all over it. Yeah, it's just a bunch of jump cuts cut together. And you get the entire gist of what happened. And like you said, it wastes no time at all. And you don't have to say anything else. And it's so much better than him. Uh, typically what a director would what they would just cut to him at the, a train station or and he's riding there. a train or riding 10 a train seconds. for like and, it's, and that's boring but he adds so much flavor and so much energy to his editing and it makes it so great another fun cameo in this film is peter jackson and he actually plays the Santa Claus in the opening of the film who stabs Angel in the hand. <laughs> I love when Danny asks him, has he ever been stabbed before? He's like, oh, it was, like, it was the single most excruciating, painful experience of my life. <laughs> and like all Edgar Wright movies, just so many great one-liners, such great writing. The action is really good. And you see just so much skill from a young director in this film. And obviously it's, it's translated to a very good career. And I don't think this guy has made... A bad movie. I don't think he'll ever make a bad movie. Thanks so much for tuning into episode 44 of Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't. Follow us. Hit those notification bells. Sign up on Patreon. And thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate you helping us make 2020 a great year. On to 2021. We're on to big things. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts you can find us. Support us on Patreon. Don't forget to enter the contest by leaving a five-star written review with the hashtag ILoveMovies included to be a guest on our show. Enter that contest. It's super easy. If you don't have an iTunes account, just make one. You can even download on PC or Android. It doesn't matter.